0: Please open your Bible or navigate in your device to Matthew chapter five. We're gonna look at verses 13 through 16 this morning. Not a very big portion, but it's definitely a standalone part of the Sermon on the Mount that we don't want to overlook by jamming it up with other things. Matthew five thirteen through 16. The topic, your vocation as a Christian is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world as you participate with others in the city on a hill to draw lost men and women to Jesus Christ. And so the title of our message is Planning Your Salt Light City Vocation. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're here this morning by your invitation uh, and by the grace in which you've given us to sustain us, Lord, even physically. And so we want to pause and give thanks, be appreciative, Lord, of all that you've done and are doing uh, for us and in our lives. At the same time, Lord, I recognize that many are hurting. Many have come with real needs, some physical, probably all of us emotional and spiritual at some level. And Lord, I pray that this text, though it has its own unique direction and meaning, Lord, that it would, it would meet all of the needs that are represented in this place today. We trust that you can do that, Lord, because you're a big God You're a living God who loves us so much. And so have your way in our hearts, Lord, as we hear you speak to us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Patmos was the Alcatraz of its day, a tiny mountainous speck in the Aegean Sea. The 13-square-mile island of Patmos was used as a Roman penal colony. Its most famous prisoner would have to be the Apostle John. He was exiled there in 95 AD after being persecuted for his faith. Several sources record that John, even though an old man, was consigned to hard labor in the salt mines on Patmos, he would pick away all day at the salt either with an axe or barehanded. Think of his hands and his arms getting scratched and cut, bleeding, and then coming into contact with the natural salt, stinging and burning. He'd get no more relief at the end of the day when the briny water of the ocean would be his only sink and his only shower to wash up in. There he was being persecuted, mining salt as the brilliant sun shone upon the island. I can't help but think that every day John would pause and as the sun was either rising or setting, he would remember Jesus telling him and the other disciples they would be reviled and persecuted because they were the light of the world and the salt of the earth. It was kind of like a living object lesson. Now, John may have lived that lesson more literally than we ever will, But modern day Christians are still persecuted and we are still no less salt and light than he was. Jesus says in this section to all his disciples down through history right up till today, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Gives rise to two questions that I will organize my thoughts around this morning. Number one, how would you rate your saltiness? And number two, how would you rate your shininess? So let's take a look at saltiness in verse 13. If I were to say white gold, you probably wouldn't think of salt because this isn't the Middle Ages, but in the Middle Ages, white gold was the designation for salt. That's how valuable it was. It was incredibly important in the Roman world of the first century. Not only did salt serve to flavor and preserve food, it was an indispensable antiseptic, which is why the Roman word for salt is the root of the name Salus, the goddess of health. Our expression, rubbing salt in the wound, comes from the practice of using salt as an antiseptic. There's evidence they rubbed newborn babies with a mild salt solution to prevent infection after they were born. Of all the roads that led to Rome, one of the busiest was the Via Solaria, the salt route, over which merchants drove ox carts full of salt up the Tiber from the salt pans at Ostia. A soldier's pay consisting in part of salt was called solarium argentum from which we derive our modern word salary. A soldier's salary could be cut if he was not worth his salt. That phrase came into being because the Greeks and the Romans often bought slaves using salt as a currency. The Romans even had a saying, there is nothing more useful than sun and salt. It's been estimated that there are over 14,000 uses for salt. Only 6% of all the salt manufactured today goes into or on food that we eat. The rest goes towards the manufacture of industrial chemicals, towards water conditioning. It's used in agriculture and my favorite, highway de-icing. You ever lived in a place where they put salt on the roadway? You find that truck and you follow it uh, because that's the only traction you're going to get. Now, for our spiritual purposes, we'll need to narrow down the uses of salt to its first century application. So let's read the verse, verse 13, and get into that. Uh, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Note that Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. It is something that is already true of you. If you are a Christian, you are salt. The question is whether or not you have lost flavor. It may sound as if Jesus was restricting the use of salt to its value as a seasoning, but that wouldn't be accurate in the original language. A better translation, and the one you find in the NIV, is if the salt loses its saltiness. Or the Amplified Bible says this, if salt has lost its taste, that is its strength and quality, how can its saltness be restored? And so it seems that Jesus has in mind any and all the uses of salt for which it could become useless by losing its saltiness. When that happened to salt, it was thrown out onto the roads and paths to be trampled underfoot by men. And so whatever you were reaching to the cabinet for to use salt for, if it it had lost its saltiness, it was no longer good for that use and all you could do with it was throw it out onto the path. Now let's first suggest a few uses of salt that would have resonated with Jesus' original hearers and then we can suggest a few ways that salt loses its saltiness. A great place to start talking about what it means to be salt is to emphasize how precious a commodity it really was. As I said, it was used as currency. Whole economies in the ancient world were based upon salt. Wars were fought over salt. The equivalent today, I guess, would be gold, although gold seems useless when you think about the 14,000 uses of salt. If you're ever stranded on a desert island, take some salt off of the sinking ship and leave the gold for people to find later on because the gold's not gonna do you any good. But as soon as you get to shore and you realize you've been cut by coral on your way in, you're going to need salt as an antiseptic. And so salt, extremely valuable. You and I, you might like salt. How many of you like salt? Raise your hand. Because your doctor says you shouldn't like salt. It's killing you. High blood pressure and all this stuff. Uh, By the way, there's some conflicting reports about that. Don't you love doctor reports? They're all conflicting. You know, I think, I think smoking is still hazardous to your health, right? They're not cha- they haven't changed their mind about that, but everything else kind of comes and goes. And, I mean, you can read some research that salt isn't going to really bother you, so I say pour it on. But you didn't hear that here. So if you have a heart attack tomorrow, I'll visit you, but that's about it. Um, <laughs> That's your business. You check that out with your doctor. but, but uh, So salt to us, is, it's an important additive to food. Some of you may be in an agricultural field or some other field where salt you know, is important. Not too much road de-icing going on here in Hanford, so I, I don't think they have a big salt pile anywhere like they did when I lived in the San Bernardino Mountains. But, uh, so you, know, you could maybe take it or leave it, but salt is an incredibly precious resource in the first century world of Jesus Christ. You are precious to the Lord, far beyond the value of silver or gold or gemstones. Just keep that in mind as we discuss salt. Now, a primary use for salt in first century Galilee and in the Roman Empire was as a preservative of food. As far back as we can go in recorded human history, men have used salt to preserve food that would otherwise go bad rubbing it in to prevent the growth of bacteria in the days before refrigeration. How many of you lived without air conditioning? Not because it broke, but because you were actually old enough to remember before they had air conditioning. It was awful. I barely survived those years. (laughs) Down in San Bernardino, it would get so hot, we'd turn on the swamp cooler and lay in the hallway by the register, the return air, and just let the, you know, the... It was 110 outside, so that was 90 coming in. It felt like a blizzard, you know, in comparison. But I thought I was going to die. I thought... How can I die as a 10-year-old? But anyway, uh, it was awful. But before the days of refrigerating food, this was a real problem because you either had to eat things right away or preserve it, and so salt was very important. Galilee was known all over the empire for what they called pickled fresh fish, which was simply the catch of the day that had been salted to preserve it so that it would uh, be able to be shipped around. God sees us as his preservative on the earth, holding back decay as long as possible with the result that more men can get saved. An example might be the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. God told Abraham he would spare those two cities from destruction if 10 righteous persons could be found in them. In other words, they could preserve, uh, they were preserving the decay of that place and God would uh, delay judgment if they could be found. Of course, there weren't 10 righteous in that city, and I've always found it interesting that Lot's wife, when she turned around to look at the destruction, was turned into a pillar of salt. Perhaps if she had been a little bit more salty in Sodom, she wouldn't have been a salt pillar outside of Sodom. I wanna say things are going from bad to worse in our country, but I think we're beyond worse. Maybe things are going from worse to worser, or even from worser to worsest, which isn't a word, by the way, but I like saying that. Still, we are God's preservative. We are delaying judgment because he is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Looking at another common first-century use of salt, it was, as I said a couple times, an antiseptic. Many ancient cultures used salt as a cleansing agent on wounds in order to cut down on the possibility of infection. Jumping ahead in history, it's recorded, for example, that thousands of Napoleon's troops died during his retreat from Moscow because their wounds would not heal because they had no salt to rub in their wounds. And so they, their wounds remained open and they got infected and they died from infection because of a lack of salt. Now, I'm reminded of Peter and John passing by the paralyzed man asking for alms and Peter fixing his gaze on him and saying to him, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so there that beggar thought that he needed silver, he thought that he needed gold to get through the day, but Peter and John provided in one sense salt in his wound and they healed him. We speak, do we not, of people being wounded who are hurting even emotionally and spiritually. Terrible things have happened to them or to those that they love, or maybe they have caused terrible things to happen to those that they love and they're feeling the weight of it. Who will purify their wounds if not a salty Christian who can apply the sting of the truth that they are indeed sinners along with the salve of the good news that their sin can be forgiven at the cross? I think until somebody is maybe a little bit offended with you, they don't really understand the gospel. Because you realize what you're actually telling somebody who is not a Christian, you're saying, you have no more hope of going to heaven after you die without Jesus Christ than Charles Manson does. And most people don't like that comparison. I mean, you you might get excited about it, but I doubt it. And so when, uh, have you ever had somebody really understand what you're saying to them, that you're a black-hearted sinner with no hope of salvation? Because most people think they're pretty good. They, they set themselves apart from really bad people who have done really bad things, and they think in the end it's all going to even out because they're, I guess they think God grades on the curve. And there's such an extreme end to that that you can kind of skate by with just the normal everyday kinds of sins. And then somehow they realize through the sharing of the gospel that there is no one righteous, not one person can ever qualify in their own righteousness and good works to go to heaven. Not a Mother Teresa, not a Billy Graham, no one apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And that is a salt that we rub into the wound of sin, but it has that quality of healing them and bringing them to Christ. Medical science is good as far as it goes. Psychiatry and psychology, they make every effort to help. But in the end, the help human beings require is spiritual because the root of the problem is sin. They definitely need salt in that wound. Now, moving on to another use, salt was used as a fertilizer in ancient times. Even today, I'm told many fertilizers, are con- fertilizers excuse me, contain some degree of salt. Obviously, too much salt in the soil would not be good, but the first century farmer knew what he was doing and he could proportion it correctly. As the salt of the earth, we are to be sent out to increase the yield of God's harvest. Sharing the gospel, serving God, increases his harvest by 10 or 100 or 1,000 fold as we allow him to proportion us as he sees fit. Last but not least, salt does add flavor to foods. It makes food taste better. It releases the best taste in a plate of food. In the gospel accounts of his life, we see people drawn to Jesus Christ. They wanted to see him. They wanted to meet him. They wanted to be around him, especially common everyday people, especially the poor and the outcast, especially the sick. Jesus had a savor that added the presence of God to any and every situation he found himself in. He gave them a taste for the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now that he's ascended into heaven, that savor is spread by you and I, as the salt of the earth. I wish just for a moment we could really understand what it would have meant to his disciples for Jesus to call them the salt of the earth. Salt was so very precious and so important and so useful. It's almost impossible to think of a better illustration or a comparison. It would have elevated them at the same time it humbled them. It would have filled them with awe and given them a desire to go out and serve him. They would therefore have understood his warning to not lose their saltiness. They were far too precious, far too useful to let anything like that happen. Now, how does salt, which is a relatively stable compound, lose its saltiness? By the way, you can really get sidetracked on this during my studying this week. Everybody wants to argue about whether salt can lose its saltiness, Uh, and there's all kinds of chemical things and all that. But the truth is, you need to realize we're not talking about the kind of processed salt we have today that is filled with uranium. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. It might be, but salt in Galilee could come from one of three sources. It was more of a natural salt. I'm getting to be kind of a nature person, as you can tell. It could come from evaporating salt water or seawater, next time you're at the coast, grab some water and uh, bring it back, evaporate that, sea salt. It could come from um, evaporating marsh water. I don't know, are there any marshes around here? Are there marshes in this area? There's the Marsh of Dimes, nah. but anyway. And then it could come from the salt mines. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> These sources produced a less stable salt. Evaporating seawater gave you great salt, But if it was not stored properly, it really could lose its saltiness over time. Marshwater salt had a tendency to retain impurities that would render it less salty. It It would hold on to other molecules of other substances. And salt from the mines would lose its saltiness from overexposure to sunlight and the elements. I would add to that list the fact that you can dilute any salt to the point that it loses its flavor. If you cook... I'm sure you've had a situation where you're making a soup and you taste it and it's just too salty, so what do you do? You add broth to it or water to it, hoping that you can correct your mistake to dilute the taste of the salt. So basically by dilution or mixing it with impurities or through overexposure, salt can lose its saltiness. And so you see where this is going. Since you are the salt of the earth, guard against those things, guard against anything that might cause you to lose your Christian saltiness. Dilution immediately makes me think of adding things to the word of God that end up watering it down or of adding things to my life that have the effect of making me less salty to others. For example, I can add liberties to my life, things that are okay for a Christian to do, although they might be questionable, these gray areas. How many liberties can I add before I dilute my witness, leaving me looking and acting just like the world until it could be said of me, I've lost my saltiness? There are any number of things that qualify as impurities by which I can lose my saltiness. We need to understand that the world is always trying to get us to relax our standards or move our boundaries to call evil good. It doesn't do us any good to be slightly better Or slightly more moral than the world, we must remain set apart in the world but not of the world. I I think one of the real dangers of being a Christian uh, today especially is that we do look better than the world because it's pretty worser, but we're not necessarily where we need to be. It doesn't do us any good to just be a little bit better than the world. Overexposure could be applied to believers who take in and take in and take in but never give out by serving. Salt must be used, it must be applied in order to have any effect in any situation. All of this background about salt is necessary so that you can ask yourself one simple question, how do I rate my own saltiness as a Christian? What is my salt factor? I am, you are the salt of the earth We're to stay salty. How would you rate your shininess? That's the point of the next few verses. It's Jesus' second illustration, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. The illustration pictures a traveler lost in the dark until he sees unmistakably in the distance a city on a hill, the many lights of its individual home shining brightly, leading him to safety and to shelter. Implied is that the world is a kingdom of darkness, that mankind is lost in that darkness, groping along with no hope of getting anywhere unless they see the lights of that city. Jesus came into that darkness as the light of the world. Now that he has ascended into heaven, he says, you and I are the lights that he's left behind. One commentator explained explained it like this. He said, Jesus brought the light of his deity into the poor lantern of our humanity and then set it upon the candlestick of his church so the whole house of the world might be lit up thereby. Scripture says it better in 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. But this precious Treasure, this light and power that is now shining within us is held in perishable containers, that is, in our weak bodies, so everyone can see that our glorious power is from God and not our own. Now, I think really we must understand that the city is a reference to a larger group. G. Campbell Morgan said, no individual Christian can be the city. One may be a beacon on top of a mountain, but one cannot be a city. The larger group, the city on a hill, would be the church. Believers gathering together locally and living in a new society within the world, they are God's method for effecting change in the world, for drawing sinners out of the darkness and into the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus said plainly, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. If the city is the church, it's another way of proclaiming that the church of Jesus Christ cannot ultimately fail in her mission. In another place, Jesus is gonna say that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. And I'm not saying the church is always doing everything that we're supposed to or that we don't need to make corrections or that we don't need revival. That's a separate talk. But ultimately, Jesus said, the city on the hill that I have established cannot be hidden. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We will prevail. God has written history in advance in broad strokes, and we know the end. Now, once again, my first reaction would be to be humbled and amazed at this. As his disciple, I am part of the church. I have my place in this city on a hill by which lost mankind may find their way to God. Verse 15, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those that are in the house. The city shines forth because within it, each individual home is lit by its own lamp. It is the total output of those lamps that is seen by the traveler. This was a feel-good moment among the disciples. They were a group. They were a society. When Jesus said, you guys are the city, they would understand that they were a new society. Each of them a lamp whose combined output would make a difference as they shone in the world. People have a desire to belong to something greater than themselves. Sadly, we go about trying to create our own societies or service groups when the greatest society and service group on the earth is the church. I have nothing against service groups. Many of you belong to different groups, and, and that's, that's all great. That's all fine. That's not a criticism. But really, the greatest society on the earth, the greatest service group ever is the church of Jesus Christ. On one level, I don't know why everyone doesn't belong to a church. Now, I know it's a spiritual thing, obviously. It has to do with whether or not you're born again. But the church is the most amazing, the most fantastic group on the earth. In it alone, you can discover your purpose and realize your potential. It's filled with people looking to love other people, wanting to help other people. Even if you're just looking to mooch off of people, the church is a great place to come because people are looking to help you. I mean, it is, it, think about it. You think, oh, I wish more people would come to church. Everybody should be in church because it's the greatest, it's the greatest society on the planet. And you know that to be true. When you find a good church like Calvary Chapel of Hanford and you come and it's like, wow, people love me and I can love people and I can serve God and, and I mean, it's fantastic. It, there's something about it, there's a level to it that you're never going to get in any other service group in any other society because there's a supernatural element to it. Now, Jesus suggested something that they would have understood to be absolutely ridiculous in the sense that you couldn't even imagine a person doing such a thing. No one would light their household lamp and then try to hide its light under a basket. They put it prominently on its lampstand to give the greatest possible light. And the side effect is that their light is seen outside the house along with that of their neighbors, and it attracts the lost, weary traveler. I couldn't really even think of an equivalent illustration today, but, but here's maybe this. You hear a knock on the door. It's nighttime. You hear a knock, and then you run and you turn off the porch light hoping that people will think you're not home. Have you ever done that? I hope not. Because you understand that if you turn the light off, they think there's somebody home. And they say things through the door like, I know you're in there. Sometimes just to be fun with friends, you know, you're expecting somebody over for dinner and they knock on the door and you turn the light off as if, you know, well, maybe you don't think it's funny, I do, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, nobody does that because they know you're there and so you're the light, you're on, you're in the city, you, you can't hide. You can't turn off the light if you're a Christian. All you can do is try to hide it and when you do, you're being ridiculous Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, ministry by definition is the spiritual work or service of any Christian or group of Christians. One of the greatest revelations we can ever embrace is the simple truth that whatever we do in life can be ministry because the light of God in us and through us never goes dim. Every job, every assignment, my family, our leisure, and whatever path that the Holy Spirit has you on can be potential ministry. We normally think of our job, if we are employed, as our vocation. If I say, well, what's your vocation? It's a word we don't use that much, but a person's vocation usually has to do with their job. The use of the word vocation before the 16th century referred to the call of God on your life In every area of your life, your vocation was that you were a Christian who was the salt of the earth and the light of the world, the city set on a hill, and wherever you went, you were those things. That's why in Colossians we read, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. The place of employment, your home, your school is a place of spiritual service to the Lord, or it can be. If it isn't, you're like somebody trying to hide the light, and we saw that that's ridiculous. For the believer, the effect of Christ's work is that there is no area of life that is not sacred. Every aspect of life is set apart for the Lord. All of your actions are done for the glory of God. Everything is sacred and spiritual. There is no such thing as the secular part of your life. Now, there are secular things, things that are non-spiritual in the world, but everything you do is to be spiritual. Jesus said, let men see your good works. I was thinking about this. He's not just talking about your working good in the sense of your being a hard worker He's talking about good works, which are works done for God, work that you pursue wherever you are because you're the Christian there. A Christian should work at least as hard as a non-believer. So if you have a job, we'll just use your job as an example. If you're employed, I think we'd all agree that you should work at least as hard as the non-Christian who is working alongside you so that you can't bring reproach on the name of Jesus. An argument could be made that you should work harder, although that can be hard because some people, all they have is their job and all they wanna do is be there all the time. And there comes a point where as a Christian, you say, hey, this is my job and this is my life. And and that becomes a testimony in itself. But Jesus is not just saying, hey, as a Christian, give it your all, work really hard He's saying, in your work where you're giving it your all and you're working really hard and there's no reproach, I want you to do something for me. I want you to bring me into it. Now, I can't tell you how to do that because I don't know where you work. If you come and talk to me, we can pray about it. Uh, And we're going to pray a little bit in a little bit, have you just pray about it and figure it out. But God wants you to bring him to work. It's Bring God to Work Day tomorrow. And every day, he wants to bring him home, bring him to school, bring him to your leisure time. It could be as simple as wearing a Christian shirt or Christian jewelry or carrying your Bible or establishing a prayer meeting or telling people you're gonna pray for them or distributing secret tracts around the office. Or I, I don't know what it could be, but until they catch you and tell you to quit doing it, do it. Just do it. There's nothing more fun, I thought, when I, before I got into the ministry, there was nothing more fun than living on the edge and almost getting fired for being a Christian. It was great. I I don't know how many times they have to call you into and say, hey, you can't be doing this stuff. Okay, I'll quit doing that. I'll do something else. What's that symbol on your tie? It's a fish. It's the Christian fish. Yeah, don't be wearing those ties. What's that button? It's a cross. Yeah, don't be, and and, you know, just keep running through until you drive them nuts. So see, if you're a really good employee, one of the best employees, and then you're also working for the Lord, that's what he's talking about, let your light so shine. So I don't want to put a burden on anybody, but if you come home and you think, man, I really witnessed for Jesus because I worked really hard today. Well, you didn't blow it for Jesus, but that's not a witness, And so you and I, we need to figure out how we can add light and shine for Jesus in the situation that we're in. God put you where you are in order for you to shine. When you do, people will be led, he says, to glorify your Father who is in heaven. Wait a minute, did they hear that right? My Father in heaven? You see, Jews were not at all familiar with such a term of endearment, not on a personal level. God was certainly father to the nation of Israel, but my father, my daddy as it were, this was something new to them that Jesus would be developing this intimacy that they could have with God. Now I am excited because none of this turns out is a duty that is being laid on me. This is my DNA. This is my spiritual DNA. It's what I am as a Christian. I am the salt of the earth. I don't have to try to be, that's what I am. I am the light of the world. I don't have to try to be, I already am. All I can do is be less salty than I should be or try to hide my light, and I don't really want to do those. I know you don't either. Together with other believers, we are the city on a hill that attracts the loss of the safety and shelter of salvation in Jesus Christ, and that city cannot ultimately be hidden, no matter what the world does to it. I want to stay salty and I want to keep shining for my dad. Let's pray.